Imagine you've just won the lottery. You're kidding me. This is real? You can't put it in. I can't put it Wait. in. see it. Are you serious? <laughs> but instead of cash, you've won extra years of life. You can do a lot in 40 years, right? Go to college, get married, have a few kids, get married again. Well, as it turns out, you may have already won that lottery. Because in the course of a handful of decades, life expectancy in the U.S. has increased by almost 40 years. The numbers are truly stunning. In 1870, the life expectancy in the United States was just 39. Pasteur was the first to show that diseases are caused by microorganisms. By 1910, it had risen to 51. There was a time, not so long ago, when there was no controlled refrigeration to contribute to the protection of health. By 1950 to 67. The antibiotics seem likely to uh, become our most important weapons against many diseases, and uh, actually, as more and more of them are discovered, it seems quite likely that in time we may actually be able to control most of the infectious diseases that plague mankind with them. In just 150 years, we've added more years to life than all the 250,000 previous years of human existence combined. More than the Babylonians, more than the Egyptians, more than the Tang Dynasty, more than the Romans, more than the British Empire. And the process of pushing the boundaries of human longevity is far from over. Despite the impact of coronavirus and other factors that have limited life expectancy in the U.S. in the last few years, experts still predict that children born in the U.S. today will have a 50% chance of living to 100. Our ancestors in the 20th century, through science, technological advances, public health, changes in social norms, added 30 years to average life expectancy. And they handed us, those living today, this gift of 30 years with no strings attached, no instructions, just you're living longer. But what needs to change for us to not only live longer, but healthier, better, and more productive lives? From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. This season on the podcast, we asked what would a century-long life look like if we did more than just inherit the rules of the past? If we were able to reimagine how we live, how we learn, how we work, and how we take care of each other. If we could draw a new map of life. Today we're going to dive into this topic with interviews with three generations of one family, the Rary family, inhabiting very different worlds. The patriarch of that family will soon turn 100. No, I thought I'd probably die around 40 or 45 probably. Those years passed and then I said, well, probably in my 70s. Those years passed and here I am. But we start this episode with Laura Carsonson, who you heard moments ago. She's the founding director of the Stanford Center on Longevity and a professor of psychology and the Fairleigh S. Dickinson Jr. Professor in Public Policy at Stanford University. Laura began her research career focusing on the psychological challenges of the elderly, but soon realized that she would need to put a wider frame on her research. And I realized we hadn't really even studied old people most of the scientific literature, that is textbook literature, was based on stereotypes. Um, and so when I began to actually collect data, I kept failing to support my hypotheses. Older people were doing better than I thought. And then my, my, the transition to longevity is actually pretty easy because you say, well, 
here's a population and this is what it's like. And then you want to understand how that came about. And, you know, you don't suddenly become an old person. You're not a Martian coming down from some other planet old. Uh, and so the question just kind of naturally went to where does this change come about and how does it come about? What part of life does it begin in? And for most of the findings about old age, uh, it's become clearer and clearer that they have their roots much earlier in life. It seems like we have all these cultural markers, like 18 is the beginning of adulthood, 65 is beginning of old age. Um, uh, do, uh, uh, you know, and, and we, we toy with those things, you know, 65 is a new 55 or whatever, whatever it is, but we, we don't really change our behaviors. Um, do we need to relitigate those cultural markers in some ways? Absolutely. They're all made up. Uh, they're all arbitrary, uh, usually based on some legal need. Uh, so 65 as a marker for uh, old age was a marker for the time when people could begin to receive social security payments. Uh, 18 is the age of legal emancipation in many states. You know, we just, we use these, these numbers to tell us something about society and how a person fits into society, what they're entitled to, whether they can vote, whether they can drink, whether they can uh, uh, drive a car. Uh, so we use them, but, but we have to understand that they're meaningless outside of the structure that generated them, right? So there's nothing magical about 65. People at 65 are, uh, by and large, uh, no different than people at 64 or even 63. Uh, at 18, no different than that, 19 or 17. Uh, most of human development is something that unfolds gradually over years. But the, the, these, these ages that we've constructed uh, were, were societal constructions. We can change them all. Okay. Let's suppose, as Laura suggests, we can change them all. But how do we start? Well, let's start by looking at the youngest ages and some of the social norms we start with. We've taken that first part of life and said, that's the time for education. And we really focus on education uh, like a laser during those years. It doesn't take much reflection before we realize that it isn't possible to give people all the education they need in the first 20 years of their lives if they're going to live to be 100 because education norms science technology the world uh, people change over over time and so uh, the idea that you could fit all that into the first 20 years and think it's going to last it's going to be good enough for the, the the next 80 is is silly that part doesn't make sense but I also think, as, as my colleagues and I have been envisioning longer lives and new maps of life, uh, that because we have more time, because we have more years, we arguably, for the first time in human history, have the opportunity to say, what would a great fifth year of life look like without worrying about what it's going to do for us later, but just what, what would children love to do? What does a flourishing childhood look like? Uh, what, is it, what, what would be terrific life for a two-year-old and then a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old? And 
we've we've not done that because short lives have always demanded that we get ready <laughs> and be most effectively prepared to be able to take on the roles of adulthood. Uh, but now we have more time. And if we start to say, where would we put these 30 years? If Laura Karstensen had her way, she'd put a lot of those years early in life. We've talked a little about learning and different ways of learning. Let's talk about what's called the retirement years now. What's retirement look like if, if work looks different, um, the timing of retirement? 65 is no longer the, the years that we, we have to retire or kicked out of work or lose our jobs. Um, mm-hmm. what, is the, what do the last years look like? The middle. Um, the, 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 the model of life that um, my colleagues and I are really thinking about is one where we have chronological age uh, ha- take on much less meaning. And instead, the kinds of lives that we think about and the design would be designs where people can experience a sense of belonging and purpose and worth from very early to very late in life. If we take that as the charge in creating new maps of life and forget about what age people are chronologically, that is, we don't worry so much about how many years it's been since they were born, uh, but rather we say, how do we, how do we make sure that people, regardless of where they are in the life course, can, can, can feel good about themselves, can make contributions and so on, then it, it, it isn't, the old age doesn't look strikingly different than middle age. So let's take the new map of life and use it to understand the story of three members of the Rary family, each separated by nearly 40 years. Dick Rary is the patriarch, turning 100 this fall. Rich Rary's son is 62, and Adam Rary, Rich's son, is 23. I'm Richard Rary, born September 6, 1921. In a grandfather's farm, just a couple miles out of Canton, Ohio. Canton, K-E-N-T-O-N, Ohio. And that house didn't have electricity back then. They used kerosene lamps. When nighttime came, why they had to light the, the lamps. We knew all the barns and the buildings and the orchard and the river and just wander everywhere. It was wonderful. Dick lived on the farm as a young man until he enlisted in the Army Air Force in World War II. He flew as a radio operator and waste gunner in B-25s, flying dozens of missions to Japan. Well, if you've ever flown over water and you don't see land, you don't see land, you don't see land, you begin to worry because they just vast, vast ocean. That impressed me more than anything during the war, the vastness of the Pacific Ocean. Some of the longest bombing missions for the United States Army Air Force were in the Pacific. During the war, I was crewed up with men that really became close, very close, because we depended on each other. And... uh, yeah, I miss them. They're all gone. I doubt if there's anybody left that we flew with over there. Other crews, too. The fellowship with the people we were with. It isn't like it is now. 
you, you got close to everybody in the squadron that you knew, and you tried to relate to them in a way that helped them too. At the end of the war, Dick moved to Ohio, where he got his degree and started a job as a landscape architect. He married, had three kids, and worked for the same landscaping firm for 35 years. Now he lives in an assisted living facility close to his daughter Lois in the suburbs of Columbus. He is of sound mind, as you just heard, and is still in good health. No, but Evelyn down there kept telling me, said, you'll live to be 104. <laughs> and I don't think so. I don't care to live that long. It gets harder every day. You depend, have to depend on somebody else. Lois has been so good, my goodness sakes. She just worries over me continually. She's been a blessing, certainly. Wonderful daughter. So, Laura, let me just ask you sort of the first question, uh, which is, I'm just curious how you, re you know, sort of how you respond, given what you think about to Dick's life, a hundred years almost, but a very sort of linear life. Married his uh, uh, high school sweetheart, um, lived with her for 50, in the same house for 55 years till she died two years ago, same job. Um, what, what does it, that say to you about how we lived and how we should live? The early part of the life that he describes is very typical of life in the early 20th century. Uh, the family farm was the unit of production. Most people grew up on family farms. They uh, got some education early, uh, enough mostly to be helpful on the farm. Uh, for a lot of uh, men, especially, uh, the world wars uh, meant that they went in very different directions than they probably would have without a war where they would have just stayed on the farm and contributed there. But instead, it made them worldly. Uh, they went off and did uh, just miraculous kinds of things uh, for the, the sake of the country and then returned, went to school, as many did, to get some kind of a trade or degree and go to work. And that was the last the, the last kind of cultural prescription. You raise a family and you go to work, period. Uh, there isn't a lot left after that in terms of norms uh, or expectations from society or anybody else. And the reason is just what he said. No expectation you're <laughs> going to live beyond 40s or 50s or 60s. Uh, most people who are old today, uh, certainly who have reached the age that Richard's lived, have gotten to old age by surprise. And they should have gotten there by surprise because what he has also described are the losses that he's had throughout his life and the people he's known. Uh, so uh, it wasn't an expectation if you were born in 1921 that you were going to be alive in 2021 by any means. What does that mean? It means you don't prepare for it because there's no reason to. <laughs> uh, so it, what, what's changed today is that for the first time, babies born since 2000 really have an expectation of living to 100. And so now we can foresee that. We can start to say, what does 75 look like and 85 and 95 look, 105? What do those years look like? Uh, but that's brand new. 
which again makes this so hard for humans to do something that we've never experienced, it's never existed, it's never been. But that's the the, the part of um, uh, the, the painting that needs to get filled in. One thing uh, about Rich or Dick Rary, so his, um, his longevity is, can be directly traced to advances in health and technology. Mm-hmm. He survived a heart attack in his 50s, skin cancers in his 70s, yeah. surviving a broken neck in his 90s. Ooh. Um, that's sort of a technology that would probably be in, unimaginable 50 years before. Um, what's that future look like? I mean, for the kids who are being born now, we'll talk to, for Adam Rary, who you'll meet in a few minutes, um, mm-hmm. how's technology going to change our health and longevity going forward? Technology doesn't get the credit basic science gets in um, contributing to longevity, but it should. One of the first things I was struck by when Dick was talking about his early life on the farm was the absence of electricity. And before we had electricity in uh, most homes in this country, imagine what that meant for refrigeration and then imagine for a minute what that means for the safety of the food supply. It wasn't good. And one of the most common causes of death uh, were foodborne viruses that killed people, uh, regardless of their age. But that was that the electricity and refrigeration, telephony, these technological advances contributed greatly uh, to the survivability of people who were born at that period of time. Agricultural technology was in the 20th century coming to provide a steady food supply throughout the year. So you could have fresh fruit and vegetables regardless of the month you were born and your mothers were healthier during their pregnancies and so on and so forth. So that had a huge um, uh, uh, effect even on the odds that he survived to adulthood. And in the second half of the 20th century, life expectancy continued to go up and it was largely through medical science and medical technologies uh, that were able to uh, effectively uh, treat first heart attacks so that second heart attacks didn't occur. And it was uh, the treatment of cardiovascular disease and now drugs for hypertension uh, that are contributing greatly to people's uh, life expectancies. There is no reason to think that the advances in medicine and technology will not contribute, but continue in to and through the 21st century. Uh, the potentials today are breathtaking when we think about what will be possible for uh, life 100 years from now and improving the physical health of lives 100 years from now. Now let's meet Dick's son, Rich Rary. Rich was born in 1958. He lived in the same house his dad built outside Columbus until he went away to college in 1976. I went to Ohio University that has a, still has an excellent broadcast and communications program that includes video, audio, streaming, everything, and graduated from there and a week later started with National Public Radio after graduation. In retrospect, I probably should have taken the summer off, but I didn't want to be unemployed, and the NPR offer uh, seemed like they wanted somebody now, and that's, that was great. Through the 34 years at NPR, I held five different jobs in 
basically in the engineering division or whatever it broadcast engineering. And those five jobs were logical stepping stones uh, that matched my interest at the time. Rich parted company with NPR in 2014. The manager who was overseeing all of engineering decided that there needed to be reductions. And I was one of the reductions. So I was a little taken aback. I, after 34 years, received a two-week notice and then immediately uh, used my contacts and networked to find, um, a con- you know, found a consulting gig uh, while still appreciating NPR and still appreciating audio in general. I wanted to turn to something that was more interesting. During his time at NPR, Rich had taught himself how to write software. As it turns out, those new skills were very useful when it came to finding a new job after he was laid off. I worked for a wonderful technology company, a very small technology company in Metro Detroit called Tome Incorporated. And right now there are 12 of us. uh, And we do software services for Ford. And the project I'm working on now has to do with transmitting communicating from a bicycle to a a car uh, with an equipped Bluetooth device that we have developed. Rich was able to pivot after working for 34 years for NPR to take up a very different line of work as a software engineer. He didn't switch jobs voluntarily, but once it happened, he was able to apply skills that he'd been learning to forge a new career path. Up until this event, at age 56, Rich had been charting a life rather similar to Dick's. I was struck by the similarity of the childhood, you know, same same childhood home uh, as the dad had had. It reminded me very much of the childhoods of most boomers among us, where the we grew up in much the same way as our parents had grown up those early years. Uh, and where life really started to become different was uh, both the expectation that we would go to college. That was not something necessarily that everyone expected in the prior generation. People got some training for jobs, but not necessarily through college. So that that became to be more common. And then, yes, this idea that you get a job and you stay at the job. And if you're good at what you do, you'll be able to stay at that job. And that was the expectation that um, many people, most people held when they went to work for uh, fairly large companies. What strikes me um, also uh, about his story is a couple of the, the, the being laid off in, in, in 2014, no notice, you know, basically don't need you anymore. And for a lot of people, if you're over 50 and you lose your job, you never work again. And, you know, earlier we were talking about the toxicity of some jobs. There's also the toxicity of not having a job and not having any options when you're only 50. Uh, So a lot of people end up retiring, not because they chose to retire or chose to retire early, but because there was no available work. Um, But what he also describes is what we've seen a dramatic increase in, and that's entrepreneurship. So what has happened for an awful lot of people when they face those kinds of circumstances, and sometimes just because they feel like their company is ageist and they don't want to be there anymore, they've said, you know, I'm going out on my own. 
And today we have more entrepreneurs who are over 50 than under 50. So a lot of people are, are saying, I'm going to, I know a lot, I can do things. I may not have the traditional job that I had or expected to have, but I'm going to go some in a different direction. And then you also hear about the role of technology, right? So it's like the story of technology keeps coming back into the story of long lives. Um, is there something about our age in which people are more focused on lifelong learning, more flexible on work? Um, are we conditioned to think differently about work than the, you know, our, our parents' generation? That's a, a great question. Uh, I, I don't believe that we see fundamental differences in learning or motivation as a function of chronological age. Uh, but what we do see are big individual differences and in how people uh, experience change. And for some people, they take it as an opportunity and they go off in a new direction. Uh, I would say for more people, uh, a sudden change like the one that he experienced uh, losing the, the job would be devastating and they wouldn't be able to uh, uh, sort of uh, recruit the necessary resources to go off in a new direction. Uh, and some of this has to do with, you know, just intellectual powerhouse. Some of it has to do with motivation. Uh, some of it has to do with resources to be able to do that. Uh, a family that could support a person while they're learning how to do something new. So there are a lot of different influences on whether people can uh, respond effectively to sudden changes uh, like the one uh, that Rich experienced. So let's, let's play uh, the final clip from Rich, which I, I, I've been thinking about since he said it. Mm. I don't know what retirement means. I don't know what retirement is or what it's supposed to be. So I think when Rich said that, um, he was in some way saying he has no plans to retire and he wants to keep working in some fashion. Um, but I'm also thinking for myself, I actually don't know what retirement is. Um, I, I don't know what it means anymore um, and what is expected of me, um, uh, of someone my age and not very different in age from Rich. What, what would you say to Rich and what would you say to me? I would say I, I don't know what it is either. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of think that's wonderful that we don't know what it means. Um, uh, because it, it means that we're going to have to be a little bit creative about what we do after this period of full-time, pretty intense work ends, and we have some flexibility to do things differently. This is where I think people will say, what, what, how do I contribute? What do I do that gives me a sense of purpose? How do I make the world a better place? How do I give back? And to have people with a lot of knowledge and experience begin to ask those kinds of questions, uh, I think is going to lead to something uh, fabulous. I think it's good when people don't know what retirement is. Finally today, we meet Rich's son and Dick's grandson, Adam Rary. Adam is 23 and graduated last year from the University of Michigan majoring in film, television, and media. When the pandemic hit, Adam finished his senior year from his parents' home in Maryland and recently got his private pilot's license. He was able to get a job in his field and works now as a video producer. I did not expect to move back in with my parents. I expected to graduate, 
Well, maybe maybe move back for a month or two, but really just get my career going, go out to Los Angeles, try to make the most of it. And the pandemic kind of shutting everything down really, of course, I had to cancel those plans. There were no jobs in Los Angeles in film, really. So I had to stay at home, which might sound not as fun, not so fun, but, you know, I've saved a lot of money. I've, um, you know, learned to fly. I would not have been able to learn how to fly if I was, you know, spending tons and tons of money on rent. Uh, and having that support network of your parents, which I'm really lucky to have great parents, it really has allowed me to do things that I wouldn't have been able to do. So, you know, haven't been able to quite start my cinematography career in the way I wanted, but of course there are silver linings. The life that Adam is describing is the life of uh, many uh, uh, 23-year-olds these days. And even before the pandemic, when which you know led to a lot of people returning home and moving in with their parents, uh, we were seeing more of that for economic reasons. And so Adam may not have made the decision to do this for those reasons, but did mention uh, benefiting for those reasons. And I think it's a great model. You know, with, with the model of life where you finish college and then you go off and you now you're, you usually have some debt and you're now supposed to start to work and you're always, you're starting kind of behind the ball. You know, I mean, you're a little bit behind financially, educationally, in terms of sort of security, knowing who you are. And to be able to, to have some period of time when you can save money, you can get better prepared and think more about what it is you want to do makes a lot of sense when we have more time in our lives, and we do. Realistically, I expect to have many different employers as a freelance cinematographer. You kind of go from uh, from film to film, and there's not really that job security of, you know, working for one employer and just being sent out on gigs. Eventually, though, after doing the freelance life for, you know, 20, 30 years, I would like to get, a, you know, maybe a full-time position, something a little less volatile. <laughs> so Adam's consciously planning a career that is far more volatile and uncertain than his father and certainly than his grandfather. Is that a, is that a trend um, that we all have to, everyone has to deal with? Um, and that's the future for better or for worse? A frequent job changes uh, is becoming a trend. It is more likely in um, Adam's generation than it was in the boomer generation, but it's still available. Uh, there are still lots of employers who are seeking and retaining workers for most of their careers. So it hasn't disappeared altogether, but it does tend, just as Adam was describing, it tends to happen more very early in a career. Uh, so that uh, young workers, those just entering the workforce, are kind of trying different jobs out, it seems. So in, in addition to the jobs maybe disappearing as you're working uh, a, a particular gig for some you know, circumscribed period of time, uh, individuals are less likely to stay. So young workers, when they're hired, are less likely to stay there, more likely to leave and go elsewhere, whereas the older workers are more likely to stay with an employer. So we see some age differences there that could also be generational differences. Uh, it, it isn't completely clear at this point in time. 
but it's it's quite likely that he will be able to achieve what he's aspiring to. That is changeability early in work life, uh, but headed to something where he'll have a more secure and stable position, uh, you know, in another 15, 20 years. So uh, you've now met three generations of Raries um, separated by almost uh, 80, almost, you know, uh, the best part of a century. What stands out for you uh, about their different lives and their different plans? You know, it's so interesting to me that people are so different and they're so similar too. Um, you know, what, what's, what's, what comes through all of these conversations is the uh, a, a sense of purpose, a sense of contributing, a purpose of doing something that matters um, and being good at it. So that that came through across the generations here that we heard from uh, just now. You know, of course, the person I want to meet is Adam's child, because those are the babies that are going to be born into a world that is going to change at the speed of light. And it isn't clear, I think, to any of us how you educate a future centenarian, how you advise them about relationships and uh, health and uh, security and friendships and uh, intergenerational exchanges. You know, those are those are scripts we're just beginning to write. And so I, I think when you look at the very youngest among us, uh, it, it'll be really fascinating to see uh, how they adapt and adjust. Uh, you know, but listening to these family stories within the same family, uh, I'm also quite confident that uh, Adam's offspring uh, will also be a person who will seek purpose and want to do something good and uh, probably be very good at it. So what is, uh, um, and, and maybe you just answered this question that was forming in my mind, but I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Uh, what's your hope for Adam Rary Jr.? Um, what would his life be, the fourth generation of Rarys, um, maybe all alive at the same time? Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, um, what, would, what would you hope that his life would be like? And differently, uh, as different from Adam's as Adam's is going to be from Rich's? Mm-hmm. My hope is that they feel a sense of embeddedness within their multi-generational family, uh, that they can count on prior generations to help steer the way for them, uh, that they can help count on prior generations to invest in them uh, financially, emotionally, educationally, and that this youngest generation, you know, sort of just, just entering life, uh, will be invested in the future, uh, invest in science and technology, uh, civil society, uh, because it's going to be developing faster, these kinds of changes, and we need people to recognize that it's everyone's responsibility to steer the ship and to make sure that we can continue to survive 
on this planet, especially now that we've been, you know, handed this gift of long life. Let's try to make sure the the planet and the world will be there for us. That's my wish. For that wish to come true, we will need big changes in how we design our map of life. For the rest of the season on Century Lives, we're going to dive into conversations with some of the best thinkers in the world and ask how we can redesign work, healthcare, education, the family, and our communities to better support longer, healthier, and more productive lives. On the next episode of Century Lives, we investigate how communities have divided themselves to the deep detriment of some and the drive to pull them back together. This highway to nowhere was a huge mistake, but this is an opportunity, a transformational opportunity. What I always like to say, to turn the the tragedy of this into the triumph, not only for this community, but future communities. The producers of Century Lives are Kerry Thompson and Ava Ahmed Beggy. Thanks to Laura Carstensen and to Dick, Rich, and Adam Rary. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.